please open your Bibles to Esther chapter 5, Esther 5. Um, we've been spending some time in Esther. We've got a few weeks left. Um, while you're doing that, opening to Esther chapter 5, I hear, I hear that there's an election on Tuesday. Did you know? Yeah, everyone please vote. And uh, Tuesday also marks the day when our phones stop ringing. Yeah, the 8 o'clock service, I got an amen for that one. And, um, you know, you know it gets bad when we're actually looking forward to more of the usual commercials uh, on TV. And, uh, you know, whatever happens on Tuesday, um, and maybe we won't know Tuesday night if it's a close election, which almost everyone seems to suggest it will be, but eventually someone will win and someone will lose. Uh, there's a winner and there's a loser in each one of the elections that are being held uh, on Tuesday. And um, the winners will go on um, immediately after even, and they will stand up before adoring people and be uh, publicly honored and recognized uh, as the winner. And Because um, we like to do that as a culture. We like to publicly honor and recognize people. Now, I don't know, I don't think I've ever seen a post-election victory speech where um, the politician was given a trophy, but um, I suppose it might be appropriate. Um, this trophy uh, I took from my son Ben's room this morning. Uh, he's away at college, but I thought, I think he has a trophy in there. Maybe I'll use it this morning, and sure enough, here it was. Now, first place, 2004 Jefferson County Basketball Conference champions. And uh, yeah, and um, we give out trophies even to publicly honor and recognize people. This one, I noticed, doesn't have a back, so I think they were saving money on this here trophy. But um, we love to honor and recognize people. And that brings us um, to our story that I want to cover with you in the time we have left this morning in Esther. And uh, it's time to take a look at one of the most fascinating villains uh, of all time, historical and in any literature. He has to make the list. And as you may recall in Esther, his name is Haman. And Haman has a problem. It's a big problem, and it's a problem that goes way deeper than the Jew Mordecai, much deeper. And Haman's root problem, as we'll see this morning, in a word, is pride. And among the many forms of pride that there are, Haman's pride problem seems to center from or arise from this insatiable hunger and drive that he just needs to be publicly honored and recognized. He wants the trophy, and he wants people to know who he is. And it's a big problem that Haman has. In all forms of pride, including this one, I, I, I would dare suggest is a problem that each of us here struggle with, at least from time to time. If not, if you're like me, every single 
day. Before we read about Haman's problem of pride, and really our problem with it too, a few definitions of pride might be helpful. I think we all know what it is, but let's try to put some words to it. Here's some that I found this week that I thought particularly got at what pride is. Pride is the cultivation, preservation, or exalting of self. It's protecting of self. It's a commitment to self. It is building up ourselves in our own eyes or in the eyes of others. Pride is an excessive belief in my superiority or my worth or my merit. It's this consuming, insatiable desire to reach and grab and want something to feed self, to feed ego. And so it's no wonder that pride is a root cause of many sins. In fact, I would go so far as to say that pride is a root cause of every sin. A priority of self and what I want and what I need over what God wants for me and over the needs of others. When we elevate ourselves into that seat that God designs for him and for others in terms of our love, when we elevate ourselves and make self-love captain, then we're primed for sin. Your Bibles, I hope by now, are open to Esther 5. Um, I'll begin reading in a minute, uh, beginning at verse 9, but let me give you a little context. What's gone before the part of the story that we're about to jump into? Well, Haman, as you might remember, has already gotten the king to sign the decree dooming the Jews. They were, in the words of the decree, on one day in the future, on one day to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Seems to be piling on, but the decree wanted to be clear, I guess. Destroyed, killed, and annihilated. We get it. And Mordecai, the Jew in light of hearing the decree, has already convinced the secretly Jewish queen Esther to help. And Esther, with her heart in her throat, no doubt, has already risked her life by going in uninvited to see the king. And the king has already just asked Esther what she wants. And he tells her he'll give her anything, even half the kingdom. And Esther... uh, very cleverly tells the king, you know what, I'd like a banquet, a private banquet with you, my king, myself, and with Haman. And the king is delighted because if there's one thing the book of Esther makes clear, the king is into banquets and especially the drinking that goes along with it. And so he's delighted, maybe because he hasn't had to part with half his kingdom but that his young wife asks him for a banquet. It's interesting to note here, I've gotten an email from some of you on, what about this name Ahasuerus? Some of the older translations keep that Hebrew name Ahasuerus in the text. I would guess most of your 
more modern translations, assigns that to Xerxes. And it's true that if I took Xerxes and transliterated at least its Greek form into Hebrew, you get something that sounds like a Hesuerus. But not exactly. And commentators have said, you know, if they really were trying to make a Hebrew form of Xerxes' name, it wouldn't have come out exactly like a Hashuerus. It's a little off. And this has led some to suggest, well, maybe the story is made up. It's not literal history. But I think there's a better explanation. See what you think. A Hashuerus, while it sounds like Xerxes, but not exactly, Hashuerus sounds like another Hebrew word. It also sounds like the Hebrew word for headache. And so is the author gently mocking, or maybe not so gently, mocking the king by giving him the sounding name? And he, This is King Headache. Not just because he's a headache for the Jews, but maybe because he, when he drinks so much, he has headaches the next morning. He's hungover. So it's King Headache. There's your explanation for Ahasuerus. And so the king has granted Esther's request for a banquet with just the king, Esther, and Haman. She's teasing his interest, perhaps, on why on earth she risked her life to come see him uninvited. And maybe she's thinking she knows her husband. He likes to drink. He gets in a good mood when he drinks. I want him in a good mood before I give him the big ask to save the Jews. The king doesn't know that's coming yet, but we do. And so maybe she's buttering him up by inviting him to a banquet and drink. During the banquet, the king, having enjoyed the wine, the text is careful to tell us, presses Esther with the question again. Okay, sweetheart, what is your request? Why did you risk your life to come and see me uninvited? And again, Esther requests a second banquet the next day for the king, Esther, and Haman, promising the king that she'll tell him what she wants at the second banquet. And it's at this point in the story where we're going to jump in. Haman is leaving that first banquet, having been invited to the second banquet the next day. And as we'll see in a minute, Haman is flying high. I'm reading at Esther 5, beginning at verse 9. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. Ha-ha, from the author, they've been drinking. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. And there it is, again, as it was earlier in Esther. Haman's pride coming out, his deep need for public recognition, even from this one Jewish man sitting in the gate who refused to stand and honor him. That desire that was so insatiable for Haman, we read earlier in Esther, is even the thing that led to Haman to convince the king, pass the law annihilating all the Jews. Verse 10, nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. He had to restrain himself. He's so angry because one man doesn't honor him. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted. Now there's a fun party. 
If, um, if you ever want to make a lot of good friends or deepen the friendships you have, invite them all over for the purpose of bragging. But that's what this egomaniac did. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Wow. All of his considerable wealth, his big family, the status that he's been given in all Persia, it's still not enough for Haman's insatiable desire to be publicly honored and recognized this one man steals any satisfaction from Haman. He's so consumed with his pride. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. I'm reading from a different translation that I had on the screen for you. Best guess at the Hebrew gallows there is not a hangman's gallows where he's hung by his neck until dead, but it's a type of gallows used at that time. It was a tall, sharp spike, and your enemies would be impaled on that spike. The Assyrians would put you on there alive and let gravity do its work. The Persians were kinder and gentler. They would only put your dead body on the pole. Both of those means of reprimand for the purpose of public humiliation. Then go to the king after that. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman. Of course it would. And he had the pole set up. That night... The king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. Some humor from the author there, too. I wonder if the king sucked his thumb while he was reading them out. Had a little Bible story read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing's been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, Who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, and of course he would, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? Or if he knew French, than moi. 
Of course Haman would think that, drowning already in his own pride. And so Haman answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And the author makes the point here of Haman's character. Four times in four short verses on Haman's mind or thought, honor, 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 honor. Three times he repeats the king's phrasing, the man the king delights to honor. It's like he likes the sound of it rolling off his tongue. The man the king delights to honor. The man the king delights to honor. The man the king delights to honor. Maybe he did a little Haman dance. I don't know. <laughs> he loves saying it. Consumed as he is by his insatiable desire to be publicly honored and recognized. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you, do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Now, I would give a lot to see the look on Haman's face. Is there an actor alive today, talented enough, to accurately depict the look on the man's face? Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. I doubt it was rolling off his tongue any longer. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. He told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, Since Mordecai, for whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. And while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Wow. What a story, huh? Part of the message today, and I hope part of every message, every Sunday, or every Bible study that you do, part of the desire of my heart is an eagerness, to instill an eagerness in you to read the Bible. It just has the best stories because they're God's stories. And they're meant to benefit us. And there's something here in the story of Haman that we need. Haman is highlighted in the text of all the individuals in Esther. Did you know that Haman is the only one where the author gives us insight into what he's feeling or thinking? We're left to wonder how Esther felt about the whole beauty contest. 
We're left to wonder whether Mordecai was being tender or kind with Esther and sending her in there or whether he was sort of, hey, Esther. We don't have the insight into what they were feeling of anyone in all of Esther other than Haman, who constantly were barraged with what he's feeling. He's happy. He's delighted. He's filled with rage. He has to restrain himself. He's filled with grief. And it's the author's way in singling out one and only one character for whom we hear a lot about what he's feeling to say, this here is an important part of the story. What's so important that God would have us hear about how Haman is feeling this morning? Let me ask it this way. What do you think that Haman needs the most? What do you think would be most effective at putting out that fire of a deep, insatiable desire to preserve and to build up self? I'll tell you in a word, one answer at least, a powerful answer. Haman needs love. This man needs love. Because love knocks away and dims that desperate need to seek love or adoration or building up myself. When I feel deeply loved and accepted, my own need or fear-driven root of pride to do it myself dims. And so like Haman, when we struggle with pride, We need to bask in the reassurance, especially, of God's love. See, it's no coincidence that if pride is the root of all sin, that God, in the Apostle John's words, is love. What's the response to the problem of sin? How about a God who is love? No wonder. No wonder Jesus tells us that the two most important commandments are love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And love your neighbor as yourself. Oh my goodness, Jesus' opinion that all of Scripture rests from or arises from those two commands, he's right again. Now, I don't think it's wrong 
to give public honor and recognition. And I don't think it's wrong to receive it. Our kids especially need the encouragement that our recognition can give them. And oddly, ironically, that sort of recognition is a form of love. But we need to be careful because we're messing around with Haman who lies there dormant at best in our hearts. And anytime, anytime we receive a compliment or we pick up a trophy, be careful that that doesn't rouse the Haman in us or in our kids and wakes up this insatiable, deceptive, destructive desire to be publicly honored and recognized. Because that road, that road, like it led Haman, ends in destruction. Haman's story does not end pretty. His dead body, together with the dead bodies of his ten sons, end up impaled on poles. And one of the deep ironies and 180 degree reversals in Esther, and there are many, is that the man who wanted so desperately to be publicly honored and recognized was extravagantly publicly humiliated. I don't think um, I'll look at uh, trophy after my study this week of Esther quite the same again. It kind of looks like a spike, doesn't it? <laughs> Be careful, Esther warns through the story of Haman. Watch out for pride. It's one thing I love about the Ortleys being here this morning. Um, they don't get paid a lot for being here. But he continues to come and he continues to go about because they're driven by this desire for these kids at Compassion International. Yes. Yes. May that be said by all of us that anyone who meets and knows us sees that even when we receive acclamation or a trophy, that our ultimate credit in our hearts isn't that I deserve this, but all the glory goes to God because our life is not our own. Our purpose is not to live for me, mine, but to live to glorify God. And how to do that? Love Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this amazing story in Esther. Father, as the old hymn goes, there's a time of longing even in the hymn where at long last our trophies we can lay down. 
Father, may the laying down of our trophies not only be when the kingdom is fully realized after you send Jesus again to take us home, but can you please, through the power of the Holy Spirit, give us the humility and the courage in light of your incredible love for us that we can indeed lay our trophies down and don't need to reach for or grab for honor and recognition because we're floored, Father, that you've given us the ultimate honor, the ultimate recognition, the ultimate love and sacrificing your son for us. Father, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Would you stand, please, for the benediction? This morning it comes from the Apostle Paul. It's from a rather famous passage many of you know. It's in Philippians 2. And hear what Paul says. Therefore, since you have comfort from Jesus' love, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, consider others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you, each of you to the interests of others. And then Paul goes on to say, just like Jesus. And it's in his name we can say, amen? Amen. 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 Have a great day. God bless you all.